right. Jordan's already told us this is the last message in our Conversations with Jesus uh, series. And we're going to talk uh, today um, about a conversation that Jesus had with Peter about the topic of peace. And uh, let's start with this question. I wonder if you have something, let me state it as a question. Uh, do you have something in your life that you wish wasn't there? And what I'm thinking here is something that causes anxiety. So you have something in your life that causes anxiety, something that causes conflict or trouble or some kind of dissonance or disruption in your life. Could be a relationship. I know some of you are probably thinking that. Could be a set of circumstances or a single circumstance in your life. And all of us would say, I believe, that we would prefer not to be in conflict, not to have disruption in our lives, and we would prefer to always be living at peace with the people around us and with the circumstances that we face. But, listen to this now, and I I read this just a few days ago in My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers said this, I feel sorry for the Christian who doesn't have something in the circumstances of his life that he wishes were not there. I I want you to think about what he's saying here, because it caught me when I read it. I feel sorry for the Christian who doesn't have something in the circumstances of his life that he wishes were not there. I mean, why would Chambers say such a thing? Well, it's because we understand as Christians... It's because those difficult circumstances are the very things that nurture something greater in our lives. And I know we don't want to hear this. And I know right now, unlike if you were in the room right now, you could just, if you were in the room, you'd have to stay here and listen to this unless you took the bold step of walking out. But right now you have the ability to actually press stop, to to stop this feed. But I know that you know that this is true. I know that you know that it's because of the challenges we face that some things are developed in our lives that would never be developed any other way. That it's these things that bring us to maturity. It's these things that give us increased faith. It's these things that that increase our perseverance. It's these things that provide opportunities for the glory of God to be seen in our lives. And so the goal of the Christian, again, not a popular notion, but the goal of the Christian must not be to eliminate the trouble at all costs. but to in fact be at peace in the midst of the circumstances, to be at peace in spite of them. And the question we really want to answer in this week's message is, how do we get there? And so we're turning to John chapter 21, a passage that's impacted me tremendously in my own life. Jesus and Peter are having this conversation, and for Peter, he has a significant disruption in his life. Prior to the crucifixion, you'll remember that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed and, and, and arrested, Peter had an opportunity to stand with Christ as he had pledged to do. But instead of standing with him, he abandoned Christ. Instead of standing with him, he denied him. And he denied him three separate times. And now here we are in John 21 after the resurrection 
Peter still feeling the weight of that night, the weight of his denials, absolutely thrilled that Jesus was alive, and yet still not completely at peace with the situation because of what he had done. And what we see in John 21, what we see in this conversation is Jesus gently, graciously, lovingly walking Peter through the process of restoration and reconciliation, a path of peace. I know, I know we need this message. I need this message. But there are some who are watching right now, who are hearing my voice right now, who are agitated and anxious, who are under distress, who are frustrated. I'm frustrated. I've felt all of these things. And God is offering to all of us a peace that the Apostle Paul would later say, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a mind-blowing, incomprehensible, you just can't explain it, you can only experience it kind of peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. He offers that to us. And all of us have the opportunity to seize upon it and enjoy it today. So let's read the passage. This is John 21 Beginning at verse 15 uh, through to 23, I'll read this, we'll pray, and then we'll start uh, looking at the passage together. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old... You'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also also had leaned back against him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, What about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Let's pray. Uh, Father, this is a a special and sacred time. Father, to know that your word is not bound. To know that nothing in this world can stop the proclamation of the word of God. To know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Father, I pray that you would do something awesome 
in the sound of my voice, in, in the sound of, of tens of thousands of voices that are proclaiming the word of God today around the world. That your Holy Spirit would move, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged in our rebellions, that, that Father, we would uh, be taught more about who you are. And Father, that those who are not yet followers of Christ would choose today to follow you. So God, bless this time. Give peace to everyone who's hearing my voice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's, um, let's go after this. Um, I'll be at peace. I'll be at peace when certain things are true of me. I'll be at peace when there is, first of all, no, no unconfessed sin issue. Now, this, is, this is a no-brainer starting point for us. No unconfessed sin issue. Not no sin issue. We all have sin issues. Everyone has sin issues. Okay? We're all working those things out. What we're talking about here are unconfessed sin issues. It's not a bad thing at all to take stock in our lives. To think about whether or not there are some unconfessed sin issues that might be hindering God's work in my life. Why I might not be experiencing the full measure of the power of God in my life, why I might not be experiencing God's blessing, why the work of God might be hindered in my life, why I might be experiencing something that's not simply a trial. Hard things come to everyone, but sometimes those hard things are just trials, and sometimes they're actually the discipline of God. So I want to, I want to Step back. I want to take stock. I want to survey the landscape. I want to see whether or not there's an explanation for some of the things that are going on in my life. You know, this past week, we celebrated the Lord's table together as a church. We had these three Zoom rooms where many of you came and reflected again on the Lord's table. We obeyed the command, the ordinance to remember the Lord's death until he comes. And, and at least in the room that I led, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's a good thing to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table to make sure we're in a good place. Remember back in Luke 11 and and also in Matthew 6, it's recorded the disciples came to Jesus. They said, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught them to pray. And one of the things he taught them to pray was, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And even though we do that, even though we're to pray that way daily, going to the Lord and saying, God, if there's any sin in my life, please forgive me of that. Even though we do that, we understand that God's already forgiven us. We know that the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient to cover all of our sins. The past sins, the present sins, the future sins that we've not even committed. All of those are forgiven. All of those are covered by the atonement of Christ. That his work in us is complete. I mean, just back in John 19, Jesus is on the cross, and as he's completing his work, he actually calls out the words, it is finished. That God had, in fact, for those of us who are saved, God has justified us or declared us to be righteous. Declared us so that in the eyes of God, based on the work of Christ alone, not our own work, 
We are declared to be righteous. We're seen as righteous in God's eyes. Now, I understand that when I'm living my life out day to day, I may not feel very righteous. You may not feel very righteous, but you are declared to be so by God, again, on the basis of what Jesus has done, and you're declared to be justified for all eternity. Nothing's going to change that. Nevertheless, okay, this is the reality now, we continue to live our lives down here on planet Earth subject to temptation and needing to regularly, God, God knew we would be needing to regularly reconcile ourselves to God. And so the point here is that we're constantly processing the daily sins we commit, freely confessing those to the Lord so that we're fully experiencing His peace. We're never feeling like there's anything between us and God. And, and, that, and that's exactly what we see happening here in John 21 in this conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is walking him through all of this because Jesus knows that Peter feels so awful about what happened prior to the crucifixion. He knows that Peter is discouraged. He knows that he's beaten. And in the verses just prior to the ones that we read here in John 21, if you want to go back later and read the entire chapter, you know that Jesus had been resurrected. They had seen him. There was proof of that. They had gone back to Galilee. Some of them were fishing again. And they had spent the night in the boat. Those that were fishermen, they had spent the night in the boat and they hadn't caught anything. (laughs) Excuse me. But then Jesus does this miracle And they bring back this haul of fish. In fact, so many fish that the nets were stretched to the limit. And at that miracle, Peter just feels so unworthy. I mean, Jesus is there. He's providing for them. He's performing this miracle. It's it's a massive blessing to them. But, But Peter is so broken and so crushed and feeling the weight of what he had done and so not at peace that he can't even properly receive the blessing of God in his life. So as they're coming back in with this miraculous catch of fish, Jesus is sitting there on the shore of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he's made a fire and he's prepared a breakfast for them and they're going to come and eat it. And then verse 15, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, I guess, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed his lambs, commissions him. He does that two more times in verses 16 and 17. We just read that. And he says essentially the same thing. He mirrors, in fact, whether Peter was perceiving this or not. And there's indication he wasn't. Jesus is mirroring the three denials with three affirmations of love coming from Peter. But in that third time, Peter was grieved. This is a little later on in the text because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said this, Lord, Lord, you know everything. It's such a um, comforting thought for us to know that God knows everything. And despite my failures, despite my brokenness, despite the fact that I sinned again, despite the fact that I sinned again doing the same thing I've done a thousand times before, I still love Jesus. I still love him. And I know that he knows that. I mean, I hope you draw some comfort from that. Lord, you know everything. 
You know that despite my denials, you know that I love you, he says. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, we could say a lot about that exchange and what was going on there, and that's a sermon all its own. But the point I'm making here is simple. Jesus restored and reconciled him and brought him peace. Because Peter's sin had already been atoned for. Jesus' blood had already been shed for those sins. Sin's curse had been removed for Peter. The curse of death defeated. All that was left to do was convince Peter of that. As is true for many of us. And for him to experience the peace of God in his life. Now if you're lacking the peace of God. Maybe it's as simple as this first one. To get before God and confess sin. To say, Father, forgive my sins. And to name those sins. To to call them right out. To say, I did this. It's wrong. And then create a plan to resist temptation. We had a great message on resisting temptation last week. Message six in this series. And we're going to do that so that the peace of God can flood into our lives so that there would be no compromising, no contention between us and God. That we're not sitting there in the midst of all the blessing of God thinking we're not worthy. Because God has actually made us worthy through the sacrifice of Christ. So maybe that's it for you. Maybe, maybe, though, you need to hear this. Secondly, to be at peace means no fighting God. No fighting God on his plan for me. I mean, isn't it, isn't it true that we often think that we know better than God? You've heard the expression, oh, that guy thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Sometimes we think we're the smartest guy in the room even when God is in the room. And Peter, in particular, was was plagued by this, that that he knew better than God. Matthew 16, 22, Jesus had just told them what the plan is. He had just been really specific. I'm going to be turned over to the religious leaders. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, no way. The text actually says that Peter rebuked Jesus. Not a good idea to rebuke God. Or, Or during the transfiguration, Peter gets this incredible privilege to see the transfigured Christ, Christ in his glory, and Elijah and Moses are there. And, and Peter, who thinks he knows better than God, says, I know what we should do. Let's build three little shrines here to Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. You know what? He made that suggestion, and no one even answered it. No one said a word about it because it was so dumb. He thought he was smarter than God. John 13, uh, verse 8, in the upper room, Jesus is meeting with his disciples just prior to his arrest, and, 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 and he, he, he's going to show them what it means to be a servant. He's washing their feet, and Peter says, no way, you're not washing my feet. And when Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter says, no, then wash all of me. It's ridiculous. He thought he knew better than God. 
Jesus said, no, you don't need all of that, Peter. So, so Peter has this track record of fighting God on his plans. And so Jesus says to him after that breakfast, here's, here's the way it's going to go for you, and you're not really going to like the plan. Here's God's plan for you, verse 18. First of all, he recaps, and he says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, you used to walk wherever you wanted to go. Wherever you wanted to go, you could go. And to, to some extent, that's all of us, at least at a certain portion of our life, uh, we, we decide what we want to do. We decide where we want to live and who we want to marry and, and, and where we want to work and what schools we're going to go to. We're making all the decisions about all of that. And that's what he's saying to Peter here. You made a bunch of decisions about your life right up until this point. You were in control of things. You were, this is the way we say it, you were making your own way in the world. But, he says, okay, here's where it's going to get hard. When you are old, it's not going to go the way you would prefer. And some of us who are a little older, we know this a little bit. And he goes on to say this, you will stretch out your hands, maybe this way, or maybe this way, but you're going to stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, and carry you where you do not want to go. God's going to take you where you do not want to go. Now again, I'm thinking, I read that, and I know he's talking about Peter, and then I think about my own life, and I go, sometimes I'm led down a path where I do not want to go. You're going to lose your freedom, Peter. You're going to lose your autonomy. Others are going to make decisions about your life, not you. And then John adds this little comment about it in, 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 paragra- in the paragraph there, or in the parentheses there, to really make sure we understand what's being said. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In other words, the stretching out your hands is either this, and you know we're going to cuff you, or this, and we're going to crucify you. That's what he's referring to. And so um, Peter going down a path, he doesn't want to go down, And then Jesus said, at the end of that, your life is going to be hard. It's not going to end the way you want. It's not going to be what you would choose or prefer. But then he says to him, you follow me. You follow me. Now, I look at a passage like this, and I'm thinking, you know those power of positive thinking guru people out there? They don't like a passage like this. I mean, if Peter had read Your Best Life Now, you know that book, he'd be scratching his head, are you kidding me? This is my best life now? People telling me how to live my life, my hands stretched out, me bound by chains, me crucified? Are you kidding me? If Peter heard a preacher say, all you have to do is name it and claim it, Peter's like, that didn't work for me. He'd think God already named it. I haven't got a chance to name it. If I named it, I would have named it something else. Or maybe, maybe Peter, if he had heard the off-spoken encouragement today, the encouragement we give to children, the encouragement we give to adults, you know, if you just believe it, you can achieve it. Follow your dreams. So much wishful thinking in that, so much bad theology in that, and so many churches and Christians who, who believe that somehow we can just conjure up out of our own minds the will of God. 
When in fact a passage like this tells us something quite different. We need to freely acknowledge our dependency on God. Acknowledge His sovereignty over all things. Acknowledge His prerogative to choose our path. We need to dispense with the idea that we can somehow fight God tooth and nail over the choices that He makes for us. That we can resist His will. We have to avoid falling into the despair of the difficult circumstances we fall in, believing that there's no possible way could, God could will this for How could this be God's will? No way is this his plan for me. No way is this for my good or for his glory. Jesus is saying a very hard thing to Peter. But really... He's saying a very hard thing to all of us. But if we don't get this, if we don't get this, if every crisis, if every difficulty we go through, every trial we face, every circumstance, if every one of those provokes a fight with God about what he's doing and what he's choosing for us, then we will never have peace in our lives. Now, I'm not saying that you can't talk to him about it. The Bible is filled with lament. The Bible is filled with, with, with pleas to God and, and, and people who loved him crying out to him for their circumstances to change. Crying out to God for salvation. Crying out to God for relief. But... What you see in biblical lament is also a turn at the end, a a coming around to see things the way God sees things, a surrender to him. And the very best example of this is Jesus himself in the garden, praying prior to the arrest. He himself was pleading with the Father, Luke twenty two forty two. If if you're willing. Now remember, he's he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. The the weight and burden of the sin of the world is already being laid upon him, and he's sensing the crisis that's coming to him. And he pleads with the Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Take it. Let's find a different way. But then he adds, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He talked to the Father about it just just as you and I can. No rebellion in talking. But then there was ultimate surrender to what God would choose for him and that, that needs to be the pattern of our lives. That needs to be our pursuit if we are to have the peace of God in our hearts and our souls and our minds. All right, two down, and this is the tough one. Because to be at peace, there must be no comparing myself to others. 
Do you do that? Do you compare yourself to others? I mean, social media is, is the worst for this. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. I do that. In fact, I'll just confess on behalf of almost every pastor I know, this besetting sin of comparing ourselves, comparing our churches, comparing our ministries, it's awful. So you do it, and I do it, and Peter did it. Now, to be fair, he's just heard a very hard thing to hear. Life isn't going to go the way he wants it to. It's not going to be easy for him. God's will is going to take him on a very difficult path. In fact, the New Testament doesn't record the end of Peter's life. He kind of fades off the scene, not even before the halfway point in the book of Acts. But uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs records this for us. Jerome, the church father, Jerome said that he, Peter, was crucified, his head being down and his feet upwards. So Peter was crucified upside down outside the city of Rome as he himself had requested because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. Now, by that time, you get a very real sense that Peter was completely at peace with God. I mean, you'd have to be to make that request at your crucifixion. He, he wasn't, at this point, comparing his path to anyone else's path. It was just his path is what God had chosen for him. But you can imagine at this point how Peter might have reasoned before the Lord if he wanted to get out of it. Lord, Lord, I'm the apostle Peter. I was there. I witnessed the resurrection. I saw all the events of the gospel. I'm a primary spokesman for the church on earth. I just think it would be a way better plan if I stayed around for a while, if I helped start a few more churches, if I preached a few more messages, if I mentored a few more pastors, if I did a few more miracles, if I wrote a couple of more letters that made it into the New Testament. God, I just think I have so much more to offer, and, and my premature death at this point just would not serve the church very well. You could, you could understand why he would say this. But Peter has lost all of that. Fully trusting God's plan for his life. In fact, Peter had written in one of his letters to fellow believers who were facing their own suffering and their own persecution. He had written this, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. Don't be surprised by that as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's the point of your life, that his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You have peace in your life. But listen, so, so you can see, Peter got to a really good place. But before he got there, back to John 21 now, before he got there, he was in not a very great place. He was still comparing himself to others. 
He was comparing himself, in fact, in John 21, to his close friend. He had been friends with him prior to becoming disciples of Christ, his close friend and fellow apostle John. Again, Peter just heard this really difficult thing about how he's going to die. Then verses 20 and 21, Peter turned and saw John following them, and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about this man? Now, I want you to think about what Peter is saying at this point. He's just heard that he's going to die a very difficult death. And I, and, and I, I wonder if what Peter is saying here is, if my life is going to be hard, I sure hope John's life is going to be hard too. I mean, that's awful. I, I know we can think that way. We do this all the time. I think we do it in the more positive sense of things, not the negative sense like that. It's not that we want people to experience the same hurts as us, but what we do is we kind of put a positive spin on that. And what we say is, I wish I were experiencing all the great things that they're experiencing because I'm not. Why can't I be blessed the way this person is blessed? Why can't I have what they have? Why is my life harder than their life? And then we start to sound a little bit like a five-year-old it's not fair. I don't know, maybe that's 15-year-old. I mean, let's admit right now, God is a better parent than us, correct? God is a better parent than we will ever be. Because we try, we have this sense of fairness that isn't exactly biblical. It's not a godly perspective on things. We have this sense of fairness that God doesn't necessarily have. We want to make every, for those of us that are parents, we want to make everything the same for all of our kids. In fact, I fell into this trap just in the last a few months. Those of you who know our family, mine and Cheryl, uh, our family, uh, we have uh, three kids um, that uh, were born to us, and then three kids who came into our family by marriage. So we have six uh, kids, and of the six kids, uh, five of them have birthdays within a 49-day period of time in the spring, from April 25th to June 13th, Five of the six birthdays of our kids land in that time frame. And so back in February, I wanted to get uh, Jordan, who is hosting this morning, I wanted to get him um, a special gift, but I gave him an early gift because his birthday's in May. I gave him a gift in February because the briar was on and he loves curling. And so the briar was on just down the road in, in Kingston, down the road, three plus hours away. It's, it's just down the road and turn left and you come to Kingston. Anyways. So we went down there. So now, all of a sudden, okay, uh, tickets for two of us, um, meals for the day, uh, gas to get out there. That's the cost now for Jordan's birthday, and it sets the tone for the other five birthdays that are coming, except for one, that are coming in a 49-day period of time. And all of a sudden, I got to treat all the kids fair. So now I got to spend all this money that I spent on Jordan. I got to spend it on all the kids to make sure that that's the way we think. Everything's always got to be fair. And God, listen, we want God to follow the same plan, but we know he doesn't. Not on this side of eternity. Fairness isn't measured simply by what happens before we get to heaven. And so we see Jesus saying to, to Peter here, ready for this? None of your business, Peter what I do with that guy, not at all your concern. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it's my will, if it's my will, if I choose to do it this way, 
Look what he says. What is that to you? What is that to you? And then he said to Peter again what he had said earlier, follow me, you just follow me. John adds this note of clarification in verse 23 because John is both the subject of the comparison but also the author of the gospel. He wanted to be clear that what Jesus was not saying was that John was going to live forever and never die. He wanted to make sure that he didn't say that. So we get the clarification there. But Jesus says to Peter, don't compare your life to anyone else. If you're going to be at peace, Peter, you need to just think about your own life and the path that I have you on. That's a good lesson for us. We need to look at the pitfalls around what it means to compare myself to others. And so let's just look at these Uh, Four points of application, comparing myself to others. First of all, here's a reason why I wouldn't do it. It compromises my view of God. Comparing myself to others compromises my view of God. We're saying, in fact, when I'm comparing myself to others, that somehow God has made a mistake in how he's deciding things for me. God has made a mistake. And when I believe that God has made a mistake, that, of course, is going to hinder my walk with Christ, my work for Christ, my worship of Christ, all of it compromised because everything in our lives, you need to think about this, everything in our lives is theology. Everything is grounded in truth. Everything is grounded in who God is. Everything good in our lives flows from a right view of God. And when we're comparing ourselves to someone else, what we in essence are doing is we're taking God off the throne and we're putting this other person on the throne and saying, that's the standard I'm measuring up to. And that's devastating. And we'll never have peace if that's the plan. Comparing myself to others compromises my view of God. Secondly, it complicates my relationships with people. I was just thinking if, if I'm constantly comparing myself to someone else, I don't even want to be around that person. Is this going to increase my anxiety and my brokenness? It gets me thinking about my circumstances and how I don't want them anymore. I want to change in my life. I don't want to be around a person that I'm constantly comparing myself to because there's too much pressure and it's soul crushing. Or third, Comparing myself to others, it clouds my thinking because I, I, sh- I should already know. This is how our thinking is cloudy. I should already know that no one else is perfect. Hey, no one is perfect. Everyone has hardship in their lives. My brand of pain may not be your brand of pain, but we all have pain. There's no end to the comparison. I should know that. Because even if I compare myself to someone and then attain to their level of whatever it is I'm trying to achieve... As soon as I attain that, I'm going to find someone else to compare myself to and try and achieve that level. And there's no end to that. There's always someone who's in a better place than you are. Someone who's done more. Someone who's accomplished more. And I'm always going to feel out of sorts and anxious because I'll always fail to measure up. And what really matters, if I want my thinking to be clear and not cloudy, what I need to remember is what God says about me. That I am, this is Ephesians 2.10, that I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I am his workmanship. You are his workmanship. 
Here's a fourth one, a final one here. Comparing myself to others compromises my view of God, complicates my relationships with people, clouds my thinking, and confuses my purpose. It confuses my purpose in that I begin to believe that the goal is self-improvement. Based on what I see in others, it's self-improvement. I'm, I'm trying to achieve some level of something and that changing my circumstances is not the mission to glorify God, but changing my circumstances is what I need to be doing. Whereas what Paul wrote was something quite different than that. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. We do not lose heart, he said, though our outer self is wasting away. I know so many of us feel that. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self, nevertheless, is being renewed day by day. For this, and Paul faced a lot of hardship in his life as well. And he says, for this light momentary affliction, whatever it is you're facing, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, where all the comparisons can happen, the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're from God. So the bottom line here in all of this, in these four little points that we have here, the bottom line is this, is, is that comparing myself to others robs me of peace. And to be straight with you, we just need to stop it. Because I need to hear Jesus saying to me, and this is why this passage has been so important in my own life, to hear Jesus saying to me, What is that to you, Todd? What is that to you? You? You follow me. All right, let's let's bring this in for a landing. From this conversation with Peter, Jesus tells us that we're going to be at peace when we have no unconfessed sin issues, no fighting God on his plan, no comparing myself to others. And when that happens, is a verse we started with in the intro, then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so we need to be going after peace. And peace is not really known. You know, I didn't define this off the top, but peace is not really defined often by what it is, by, 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 by what it isn't. We often define peace as the absence of conflict, of strife, of dissension. Some think that we get peace by just ridding ourselves of of all of that conflict and difficulty in our lives. But if we were to find peace more positively, not in terms of what it isn't, but in terms of what it is, then peace is really the sense of being complete, of whole. As one definition says, it's the sense of overall well-being. Or as the old hymn said, it's acknowledging that it is well with my soul. No matter the circumstances, no matter what's coming at me, it is well with my soul. I'm at peace. Peter had been reconciled and restored to a place of overall well-being. He was at peace. And, And you? Are you at peace? Is it well with your soul? If not, 
surrender your life to him. All seven of these messages in this series, these conversations with Jesus have been driving us to this one point. You, follow me, Jesus said. And if you're not yet following him, why not? No one else is going to give you this peace that surpasses all understanding. Follow him today. Let's pray.